This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Good afternoon, cheese lovers, eaters, aficionados. My name is Julie. And my name is Camille, and we are both cheesemongers at Benissimo Del Mar. We are the Dairy Maidens. Ding, ding, ding. Today, we bring you the second episode of The Dairy Maidens, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to the first episode, go listen now. It's all about California milk, California cows, and most importantly, California cheese. As much of it as we can fit into 40 minutes anyway. Give it a listen. So The Dairy Maidens is hosted on the second Tuesday of every month, um, and we will bring you answers to your deepest, most burning questions about cheese. Through a historical, sometimes scientific lens, we research a variety of delicious topics and do our best to spread all there is to know about cheese to you listeners. So with that in mind, listeners out there who cannot, for the life of them, stop thinking about cheese, please, please, please send us your cheese-related questions at info at venissimo.com, and we will try our very best to answer them in the next episode of Dairy Maidens. So, Julie, today's focus. Um, What are we going to (laughs) do? We are talking about the blue in blue cheese. By answering some questions like, what is blue mold? And what is that funky thing that looks kind of green? Is that mold? Is that not mold? And um, what are the preferred methods of aging blue cheese? You know, why is it special to begin with? Of Mm. course. And all the answers can be very, very complicated because they are full of scientific mystery. But that's the stuff that we love. Yeah. And it's... um, it allows you to start asking questions like, what what are the famous blues out there? So I think some popular ones that are some or some people are quite familiar with now are yeah. Hilton from England, mm-hmm. Gorgonzola from Italy, um, Roquefort from France, and lesser known is Carbalas from Spain. Yeah, and- These are some, yeah, hmm. okay. some of the bigger four bigger known blue cheeses right. that have tested the histories of time or right. the times of histories or whatever way you the test of time test of time thank you that's what i meant to say most people ask about it. these cheeses when they come in i always hear um i think stilton is the one that's requested the most and roquefort but like, mm. think about it if, too. that's true that's, that's true we have gorgonzola dolce in our shop so i think um that's a little bit different from the gorgonzola most people are used to but still mm-hmm. those are the we usually have all of these in our shop. Yep. Um, and think about it, like, without mold, there wouldn't be cheese. And without cheese, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> right, like, what the hell would we do with all our free time, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Probably come up with something else. But um, so, uh, so cheese is one of those ancient professions that has gone back to Neolithic, Stone Age, as far, as far, far back as you possibly want to imagine. And it's really kind of the discovery of... Um, cheese making with the advance of food technology over the mm-hmm. years. So farmers um, were more uh, more aligned to start making cheese because it was a, an easy, natural way to preserve milk that wasn't perishable. Mm-hmm. And you can make a protein out of it. So it's a quick, nutritious um, source. So cheese, is surprise, is actually a lot healthier for adults to consume um, over milk. Milk yeah. is meant to be consumed mainly for children or, or during infancy. Mm-hmm. And that's because the body naturally produces less lactase, the enzyme that helps digest lactose. Um, and that uh, lactose is abundant in milk and less in cheese because it's broken down. Right. When it, so. so long story short, to all the adults out there, eat more cheese, drink less milk. It's natural yeah. for your belly to ache when you drink a tall glass of milk with a plate of spaghetti, which is apparently a thing I've been living under a rock. 
Like, yeah, I so Julie told me <laughs> this story where so our manager Christine's husband drinks a glass of milk with spaghetti. Right, Tom. And Tom I drinks a glass of milk with spaghetti, and so does our <laughs> cheesemonger Sarah. She says she grew up eating spaghetti with a tall glass of milk. Like, yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. Is that I, a thing? I, I just that it sounds like you're gonna have an indigestion. You just it doesn't. I'm, I mean, I'm sorry for people out there who do like that. I'm really sorry. I just, that to me, I'm not used to that. That sounds really just... interesting. Like, I can't imagine how that can be re- refreshing, but I have had an ice cold cup of milk with a chocolate chip cookie, and I understand. Also, um, <laughs> it's, like, it's not the same thing, dear. I know, it isn't, but <laughs> something very similar in a similar vein, though. Um, you know how milk helps dissipate spiciness? Yeah, I, yeah. Whenever I have I like spicy instant noodles, I will have milk on the side just to like clear the help me with the spiciness. Spiciness. It's purely functional and not for like the flavor pairing of milk and instant ramen. But, you know, there's probably some super gastronomic fancy restaurant that's starting to do like a little piece of spaghetti that you have a glass of milk and just have some sort of <laughs> experience that you go through. We'll have to but tell this Tom is totally, and Sarah this about is that. so related to blue cheese, right? Right. right. Yeah. Anyway. We haven't scratched the surface of this moldy subject. So, Camille, tell me where these blue molds come from. Well, they're quite—they're more familiar than we want to uh, always recognize. Um, they commonly exist in our kitchen, surprise, surprise. And it's not just when you have cheese in the fridge. But um, think about the blue mold that forms on the surface of, say, stale bread or the greenish mold on um, an orange. Um, these are actually blue molds. So th- these are the doings of two very, very uh, important and often use penicillium. It's called penicillium rock 40 and penicillium, yes. penicillium glaucum. Yes. Glaucum. Yes, I had a hard time saying that. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so most of the time when you're seeing anything moldy in the kitchen, it's an indication that that food item is going off. But mm-hmm. with cheese, it's the opposite. You want that mold yeah. spoiled thing happening on. Right. And blue cheese has a bunch of varieties. It comes with a variety of textures. It can be crumbly, fudgy, creamy, or... Flavors that can be sweet, salty, and piquant, all of which are characteristics of their growth of the growth of blue mold. So, if you've ever seen webs and tangled lines of blue in the paste of a cheese, those are called veins. Um, these veins mm-hmm. contain pockets of air for the mold to spread because mold needs air to live. They love air, but yeah. more on that later. Yeah. <laughs> they do like air. Mm-hmm. Um, I like air too, but I don't think I'm moldy. No, um, maybe sometimes yeah. if we haven't taken a shower for like three days, and you know. So, so the two prominent strains of blue mold used to inoculate these cheeses um, that we've already mentioned is penicillium rock 40 and penicillium glaucum. Both of these strains are actually distant cousins of the strain that we've probably all have used at one time called penicillin. Um, but please don't worry. If you're allergic to penicillin, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be allergic to blue cheese, yeah. to penicillin 40 or penicillin glaucum, mm-hmm. because those two penicillin are of the same genus, but they are different species. Yeah. So you have to be, you would have to actually be allergic to penicillin rock 40 or penicillin glaucum. Exactly. Uh, so you can actually, you can eat cheese if you are yeah. allergic to. Never fear. There's always Never fear. Cheese. But to uh, repeat, these two penicillins, um, their ideal environment is high humidity and good airflow. We will be so. repeating that throughout this podcast. Yeah. High humidity, good airflow, <laughs> airflow is what mold loves. So think about an open bag of oranges sitting on the counter right next to the window that gets the best sunlight. 
you almost always notice condensation between the oranges, between the plastic, between the nooks and crannies. That is humidity. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And so penicillin rock 40 with the right combination of these factors uh, can produce this really beautiful balance uh, cheese with acidity, salinity, and density. That's what makes it so flavorful. It's what we like about blues. Mm-hmm. And but. Uh, to be done correctly, there needs to be a little bit of finesse. Pelicin rock fruit grows very quickly, and without proper care, um, a blue cheese can start tasting too blue, too strong. Yeah. And if we're talking about how penicillium roccaforti achieves the complexity it has in flavor, we'll need to get a little bit scientific. So whatever it is that penicillium roccaforti exists on, there's bound to be proteolytic activity going on. Now, proteolysis is the process of breaking down proteins, and proteins are chock full of amino acids. And if you don't know what an amino acid is, if you've ever heard of glutamate, that is an amino acid. It is the G in MSG, and it is what makes umami, umami, so they say. Umami. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, when penicillium roccaforti breaks down the casein proteins in milk, casein being the main protein in milk, the pH of the cheese is raised, and that contributes to the texture and flavor change, flavor complexity in the paste. In addition to that, being in addition to being proteolytic, molds like penicillium roccaforti are also lipolytic. They can break down fats in milk, giving blue cheeses ex- special pecan flavor mm-hmm. and listeners out there who aren't so familiar with how cheese is made um, cheese isn't only made with milk salt and mold there's almost always a starter culture and a rennet yeah. and these are the main enzymes that will break down the milk casein structure which forms the the main curds of the cheese and so penicillin rock 40 really only starts its magic after the rennet transforms the milk into curds yeah. because of how fast and this is because of how fast penicillin rock 40 grows the majority of um pro- Teolectic activity in blue cheese is due to penicillium rock 40. Nice. So I don't know if that, that makes sense. Yeah, That's it does. It. I, I think digested. it, okay. yeah, it, it <laughs> makes perfect sense. Um, to give you an idea of what it used to be, though, in early cheese making, penicillium rock 40 occurred accidentally from the spores in the air or contaminated milk. So these blue molds exist in the air that we breathe every day. We just can't see them because they have not found an organism to latch onto or a food item to latch onto with the perfect environment for them to spread. Um, it wasn't until the 18th century that it started being penicillin roccaforti started being inoculated into cheese curds as part of the recognized process of making blue cheese. Um, cheese, mar- cheese makers would initially collect these spores from spoiled bread. More on th- these origin stories later. Nowadays, <laughs> most strains are cultivated in vitro or outside of a living organism, so in a test tube. These test tube molds have shown to be more safe and more consistent and more delicious in the end result. And that really only started 40 years ago. So if you think about it, um, if I ask my parents if they've eaten blue cheese as children, they probably mm-hmm. will have said, said yes. And that means they've eaten blue cheese that was cultivated from On a moldy bread. piece of bread. <laughs> nah. I don't know. It, I mean, I wonder... Four years ago isn't that long ago. So I wonder what made it shift. I guess the consistency of having more control on the mold growth and but, like demand i'm but, sure like you can that's true demand right. production like probably tripled over the or even quadrupled who knows you could probably and grow was, blue mold in a test tube way faster than on a yeah. piece of bread yeah in a controlled environment 
But I kind of like the image of like a section of your cheese making farm, which like open a cave of bread. full yeah. of rye bread, covered in just, mountains of blue and green mold. That kind of nice little. I like oh, that. I'm so surprised there are more picture pictures. Yeah. Right. Wait, right. we didn't talk about the other we penicillin. Forgot penicillin glauco. The, the, like the the brother. So yes. pen, and overall, penicillin rock forties is the mo- more consistent um, mold choice. Yes. But this is this is the si- the younger sibling. The younger, definitely younger. The younger sibling, I, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Underdeveloped, almost. Milder in flavor. Well, I'm, I'm gonna go like <laughs> mild. I guess I'm gonna go underdeveloped. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> Milder in flavor and lighter in uh, color. Yeah. And lighter in color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Penicillium glaucum, as Julia said, is milder uh, because of yeah, so penicillin glaucum is milder of the two, and it's predominantly uh, using cheeses like gorgonzola or blue d'Auvergne, these yeah. other types of blue cheeses. Um, and these cheeses are actually milder in flavor. <laughs> so it was uh, famously seen, or ha- it is, you can see it if you ever want to do your own experiment. Um, if you look under your car and you happen to have left like an apple core or an apple that's there for ages and it starts growing that, that um, green, green fuzz. color, <laughs> that's Penicillium glaucum. Just Would, to give the visual there. Didn't you have so, a story, Camille, about your dad's... your Friends, no, eccentric my friend. dad. <laughs> so my, my friend has a, her father's a, a mathematician, a professor of math, yeah. and he's just a very eccentric human being. I have never actually personally met him, but yeah. I have heard the endless stories. Yeah. And so they had a car that they all shared. And one day the whole family was in the car. And he, the father got really upset because he said it smelled like mold and it smelled like mold. And so my friend goes, well, obviously, have you looked at your, um, uh, what do you call the, the area? Coffee cup. Coffee, coffee cup, cup mug there, guys. Yeah. And he goes, why? She goes, oh, it's got to be like 10 apple cores in here. And of uh. course, they're like molding. <laughs> and the brilliant part of that is that he completely denied that it was his apples, even though he's the only one who drives that car. <laughs> he's so, the only one who eats apples. No one eats apples. So he's oh, like, he's blaming the rest of his children. Like, the car's dirty, the car's messy. And they're like, well, dad, it's, it's obviously you. But okay, whatever. He should have I been guess blaming that's how penicillium glaucum. About, he should have been blaming penicillium glaucum. Exactly. Yeah. Or... Just don't eat apples, but yeah, um, leave them in the car and not throw them away. <laughs> so I have a more visual between Penicillium glaucum and Penicillium rock forty. Penicillium glaucum is not as vibrant um, in color, even though you think what we just talked about the apple would be more vibrant. But it's a, a more pale green, mm-hmm. and Penicillium rock forty is it's like a, a bright aquamarine. Yeah, and um, you you can actually notice this a little bit in the cheese. It's very distinct. You probably wouldn't tell largely, but if you get the chance to like have gorgonzola on your cheese platter and maybe like Roquefort, you'll yeah. see a difference in color. Uh, flavor-wise, yeah, because yes, there is a flavor difference. Um, Penicillium glaucum is lower in meth- methyl ketones. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about what that does right. I think Julie's going to go into dive into that because that's her thing. But yeah. um, there's a lower count of methyl ketone in Penicillium Mark 40. Um, and Pretty much. Methyl- Pen- yeah, you want yeah, them? pretty much yeah. um, methyl ketone is a group of compounds that cause a distinctive uh, blue cheese taste. If you've eaten blue cheese, you know what I'm talking about. It's clear like, uh, that a cheese blue. is blue <laughs> compared to another, like a, a cheddar, you know. Um, the lower methyl ketone count in penicillium glaucum means that it is less bluey and less strong, more gentle in flavor than penicillium roccoforti. So we've pretty much covered the basics in blue mold science. Let's review some key points real quick because it is a lot to take in. Definitely. Or they're just not familiar terms if you're yeah. non-sciencey like me. And but maybe you're very 
we're around cheese all the time and it's still hard for me to retain this stuff. I have to read it over and over and over again. So go Camille. Right. Penicillin Rock 40 and Penicillin Glaucum. These two love, love humidity and fantastic airflow. I think that's like, if you can remember those two things. Humidity and airflow. We said we'd be saying this a lot and we indeed are. So Penicillin Rock 40 is bright in color and strong in flavor. Whereas penicillin glaucum has a lower pigment and methyl ketone count. This means that it is paler in color and gentler in its blue flavor. And so these molds develop really complex flavor profiles in the cheese through um, proteolysis and lipolysis. These two processes break down proteins and fats. And this is what contributes to the rich flavor and texture of blue cheese. Exactly. And it's what we like it's what we like about them. So it's why right. we eat them. Yes, yeah. exactly. Without them we would just have what a puddle of curds. Um Well we just wouldn't I guess you just wouldn't have you wouldn't have cultivated blue. Yeah. Like, I don't know blue. what yeah, I don't know what you would regular, have had. Regular non blue cheese. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean well I don't know if I agree with that. Even just like a regular schmumpel cheese. I'm not a blue cheese because, exclusive eater, but you know, if we're talking about yeah. blue cheese. I would like to have real the real thing, um, not real like thing. over blued, over salted. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Now, we like, we like to talk about <laughs> things later. <laughs> we need. Well, this is a long podcast. We have a lot of information <laughs> to talk about, but now we need to take a breather because we just basically sat through science class. Um, so we brought cheese in snack. with us today. Yeah, <laughs> we wanted to try some blues. Exactly. What so, do you have, Camille? So I have, um, and I've never had this one before. I've had Rock 40 or Rock Fort Pampion mm-hmm. Black Label, but yeah. I've never had the Rock Fort Pampion Revelation, which is a green <laughs> label. Ooh. And it is, um, it's, so I like my blue cheese with fruit. Yeah. It's been my um, after dinner dessert snack lately. Yeah. But I'm, I find that it's, um, to taking a bite. It's a lot milder of a Rock Fort. Okay. Like not as pear liquory, no, not as pear liquory. It's more metallic, but it's really yummy. I mean, I, I it's I had never had this version. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk, and we, we will have a little segment about what Rockford is and the history yeah, of it. Right, and later. there are there are a lot of creameries um, that make Rockford, but just because of distribution and what we can receive in the states, we only get certain types. So it's kind of fun when you can try a different variety of the same cheese. Mm-hmm. So. What's the fruit you're eating it with? An apple. Nice. A gala apple, I think. Delicious. Yeah. I, How about you? What's on your plate? I was going to bring Bailey Hazen Blue and Point Reyes Blue, both of which <laughs> are one of my favorite, are my favorites of blue cheeses, but I ended up bringing Mineshaft. I love Mineshaft. It's made in California under, I believe, Shaft's, the company. Shaft's Creamery. Shaft's Creamery. Well, um, the the Shafts. Yeah. The story about this cheese is that it is made in an abandoned gold mine, mine shaft, hey. and it's made <laughs> with buttermilk, I believe. That's why it's got this like, yeah. tang. Really it's a lovely bit tang granular to it. Too. Yeah. And it makes great blue cheese dressing. Oh, yum. yeah. That's a good idea. I think I might do that with the rest of this. Because it's so soft and creamy. Mm-hmm. Um, I took it out not even 20 minutes ago, and now it's, like, Mm -hmm. scoopable. Well, now that I think that we've uh, 
indulge our listeners with some possible blue cheeses. Should we look at more of the history? Oh yeah, I think we should. Absolutely, history. We the history is cool. Like this is this is a little bit more digestible. This for is me, our thing. But we kind of like gravitate toward the history and the story behind things, and the science part was fun and informative. But now let's get into the stories. Like whenever you need we, both, right? You need both to <laughs> inform you when you eat. Well, I need that because it helps me appreciate the food that I'm eating. Um, whenever I think about a food item like blue cheese, bread, or pickles, or anything that requires time to age and ferment, mm-hmm. my mind inevitably wanders to how anybody even dis- discovered that in the first place. S- discovering that spoiling food would actually make it taste better blows my mind. Like, yep, right? It seems I, I, counterintuitive. What? Look at what you have: wine. Bread. Well, no, bread's not. I guess the yeast is fermented, yeah. so cheese. Yeah, spoiled food. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless it hurts your stomach, it's still edible, right? No, I guess. But I was well, talking about Rockfort since that's mm-hmm. what I was nibbling on. I was reading this. I, th- I believe it's folklore. Uh, it's kind of hard. Sometimes it's hard to find. The, these cheeses are can be so old that there's not like a exact date printed anywhere. Yeah. So, but the story, the fanciful story goes that uh, Roquefort is from France, and so a French shepherd was taking a, a break, eating lunch with bread and these curds, and he, um, being French, he spotted a beautiful woman out in the pasture and decided to leave his food and go. <laughs> her pursue her pursue her however many hours later unknown he came back and he found um blue mold most likely am rock 40 on his curds he ate it and said voila c'est magnifique it's tasty so that's the story that's the supposedly story if you think about it he would have to be gone for a really long time before that and it would have had two good things good airflow <laughs> and good humidity yes exactly so, hmm. i wonder how long he was pursuing that woman for next topic we also read the possible origin of gorgonzola which is very similar um apparently an italian cheesemaker in gorgonzola italy was rushing home to his lover and forgot about a batch of curds that were j- still draining he got oh. back the next morning and he was like oh shit what do I do? Night before curds plus morning of curds. He mixed that all together thinking he was covering his tracks. Pretty tricky. Really, cheese is very finicky. So it turned out way Mm. too moist. And to fix this problem, he ended up piercing the cheese with holes to release moisture, extra airflow. And that ended up creating the perfect (laughs) environment for penicillin glaucum to grow in the cheese. When he saw these blue veins, he was like, hmm, what is this? I'm going to give it a taste. And he tasted the first ever gorgonzola. Yeah. Magnificent. <laughs> so I'm, I'm seeing a little similarity between our stories. There's um, lots of lovers. Lots of lovers. Lots, lots of, of cheesy killing love, blue. Uh, it is the month of Valentine's Day. So right. maybe listeners, you want to pick up some blue for your partner? It is and an aphrodisiac, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I don't know about that. But in this story, you know, it seems to be coming off the an heels of some horny decisions. And yes, very horny decisions. <laughs> Something's going on with that penicillium. It's then. about the Valentine's. It's all about the penicillium. <laughs> right. So, um, like we've said a probably a handful of times now, 
blue mold is abundant in our air, not just in France, Italy, and Spain. Mm -hmm. But we've already mentioned earlier that blue mold loves humidity and good airflow. And these three countries happen to have areas where there is a lot of limestone caves, old barns, old cellars. And so it just... Not natural. I mean, I don't want to say naturally, but it was prone to happen in these environments because, yeah. and that's and it's that's where these environments originated. To grow, yeah, right? it's like their homeland. Yeah. So and- I guess to answer what you were saying before about spoilage of food, it's in some sense it's it was like just predictability that it would eventually happen mm-hmm. because of the location you were in and the type yeah. of humidity levels. I mean, you make the most out of where <laughs> you're from, your region, yeah. right? And that's how they made the most out of their limestone caves, old barns, and cold cellars. In the early days of cheesemaking, everything was done by hand. So without machines to cut and press curd, this made for a very irregular curd structure and uneven rind. Um, In cheese terms, this is considered an open texture cheese, which I love. I love how straightforward that is. You just, when you hear open textured cheeses, you just imagine curds that are packed together, but not tight enough for there to be no air within the cheese. So Penicillin Roqueforti and Penicillin Glaucum will find these air passages to penetrate and spread through the cheese. Hmm. So if you have an open texture cheese, its example would be Wensleydale or Cheshire. Mm -hmm. These are two English, um, very popular English cheddar-like structured cheeses. Um, And these cheeses bloom quite naturally. They're they're more susceptible to blue, to blue mold. They were very popular in the 14th century. Um, Wensleydale was actually a blue cheese right. predominantly, yeah. which is funny because now uh, how we know it is sold as um, a non-blue cheese. Yeah, it's so a majority white of white cheddar. White cheddar. So when we see blue, we in the sh- shop, we'll cut it off because it looks as a defect to the cheese. But the irony is that it, that was its original. It, right. it, it's like... It's like um, uh, Jack and Heidi, no, Heidi, oh, ah, my, <laughs> wait, what are you saying? Uh, what's that story with, um, Jack and Heidi, though he transforms, he has two characters of the same person and he's, um, one side's bad and one side's good. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm completely blanking. I know whoever's listening probably knows what I'm talking okay. about, but I hope, I hope somebody out there hope, understands. But it's like, it's like Wesley Dale's like it had, it's had two sides. It's yeah. lived two lives. So we've we've had it before and I've noticed that it blues super fast. That and Quick's goat cheddar. Quick's goat cheddar and Quick's ewe cheddar will blue really fast and the veining goes into the cheese. So when we have to cut off the blue cheese, the blue part not the blue cheese. Well, yes, the blue cheese part. We have to cut that off. We cut off a lot of the white paste as well. And, you know, we end up not carrying these cheeses because of how quick they spoil and how not quick enough customers come and buy them. But really, next time that happens, I'm going to cut off a piece of the blue and put it in my mouth because that's what it was originally. Blue Wensleydale. Blue Wensleydale. Yeah. Yeah. Yummy. Um Rockfort makers would cultivate their blue cheese on rye bread. We were talking about rye bread. Sorry, yes. I just decided to jump. Sorry, leave no, no, it's there. okay. Segue into Rockfort. <laughs> We've already mentioned. Uh, we're this talking anyway. about Rockfort, but we mentioned this before that using um, rye bread to form the mold. This was how Rockfort uh, originated yeah. by using um, rye bread. So they would dry the mold, crumble it, and put it into the curd. And it, but because science wasn't entirely advanced by then you you were relying a lot on the quality of the wind and how fast or how strong the wind was going and the cheese would be very different from batch to batch right and once 
the popularity of blues started climbing, the processes of making blues were more standardized. Um, something, again, we will talk about later when we go into specific blue cheeses that we want to mention. But in, in general, just with modernity, the more more science we, we get and, and the more advanced technical, technical tools will make cheese making more consistent. Yeah. Um, and Julie For mentioned... Better, I think. Yeah, before that, with just an increase of production, you need a way to regulate things uh, mm-hmm. more efficiently. Yeah. So, so you see in the 1940s onwards, um, just a boom of scientific practices in the food industry. And particular strains, the ones that we've been talking about, Penicillium Rock 40, um, were, were starting to be selected for their superior flavor and their superior production qualities. So you could isolate the strain and then classify it based on its flavor and texture. And then cheesemakers... Um, since have been able to inoculate milk with specific blue molds that way they have a more consistent blue cheese so and that's it, really cool that now you can like be more be very very specific in the strain that you want to cultivate so you know it's a known quantity the cheese that comes yeah. out at the end of the line and i, th- I think you can get and, and in the u.s we've seen a huge splurge of exploring different types of blue cheese and i think that's probably in part by having more con- different types of blue strains and more consistency on it, you can experiment. You can experiment, yeah. Something yeah. we mentioned so you in get our last things. podcast that yeah. in America here we experiment things and make things, you know, America. Cool and yummy and, and creep <laughs> like Mineshaft. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> With buttermilk. Gold rush, yeah. you know? And buttermilk. Yeah, exactly, buttermilk. So, um, With the increasing popularity of blues, the slow processes of letting blues develop their veins naturally was changed to accommodate the global production and distribution of these cheeses. So as Camille mentioned, cheesemakers now tend to inoculate their milk with blue mold cultures before aging the cheese instead of only relying on the spores in the surrounding air to slowly penetrate the cheese. Hmm. So going back to that technique of the so-called first ever Gorgonzola maker, right? Piercing cheese uh, to increase airflow, we call that needling. That's the, the correct term. Yes, um, needling. So needling. Um, and this allows for the blue mold culture to penetrate into the cheese and spread faster without relying on small pockets of air between the curds. So uh, some cheeses are pressed, some cheeses aren't pressed, but the idea is that some air will get stuck in between. Mm-hmm. but with piercing, at least you have, again, that consistency. You have a higher chance of making sure that the mold spreads yeah. because of air coming in. Yeah. And though there are still open textured cheeses, which we talked about before, these are not touched. These are natural blue veining. They're mm-hmm. not pierced. No. So they're, they um, can vary. I feel like if you do pierce an open textured blue, it will end up being overly blue because there's already so much air in blue the hap- in, in the I think the, the way we've talked, we didn't specify this before, but some of the more open texture cheeses aren't as compre- aren't as yeah, pressed. As they pressed. have, as Julie was saying, said they have more air already in them. Mm-hmm. So by having more, just be like an over overkill, kind of like a spider web of blue. Yeah, yeah. sometimes you don't want that. It's hard to but make there, perfectly balanced blue cheese. And and you can get a, a different type, which is a different type of cheese, um, which isn't a blue cheese, but it's the molds on the outside. Yeah. And that is a shout out to Montenegro. Shout out Montenegro. It is so delicious when it's delicious. perfectly ripe. It's like 
savory and walnutty and warm, little salty finish, a little bit salty tangy. So Montenegro is milk. Mm. It's goat's milk. So Montenegro is it's a goat's milk, a young goat's milk cheese from Spain, and mm-hmm. it's not aged for quite that long. But the outside looks like a like a really really moldy piece of bread. It looks almost uh, ashed, I would say. If you've seen goat's yeah. milk at like ashed goat's milk, I wouldn't know that it was covered in penicillin in, until maybe like it's been exposed for a couple of days and then the ash turns. You start kind seeing of, that bluey, yeah, that, you see that, that line, aquamarine line, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, delicious uh, goat's milk. But uh, but speaking, since we're talking about open textured cheeses versus uh, closed texture, yeah. During the holiday season, we had we had a bunk. We had a bunk Rogover Blue. Um, Rogover Blue is another cheese, another blue cheese that came out white. We had cut it open. No blue. The paste was completely white, and it is a very coveted blue cheese because it is seasonal. I think you only get it from uh, yeah October for the holidays, December or so- something, something like that. And so some we ordered it specially for our Christmas rush, and somebody wanted one. One of our cheesemongers cut the wheel open, gave him a piece, sold it, and it was just sitting there. And each of us tasted it separately. Each of us had a little scoop of it, and we were like, hmm, not as blue as usual, but I could see that this is really the, the, the funny. The funny part is that we were, because it's the holiday season, everything's insane. We didn't register that there was something wrong. We like, because you you. <laughs> You end up trusting so much your cheeses. Yes, maybe it's a mental thing. Yeah, you're. Like, it was a mental. My thing. eyes we, aren't registering blue, but I, all five <laughs> of us literally sat around this cheese, going, no, "There's nothing wrong with this cheese. It has to be right." No, it's always like this. Isn't this like no? Something's definitely missing. And Christine and came where, to look like, at it, Hello. and she's like, "Hello, there's no blue in this. We got, you know, we got a bunk. We're not. We're not all this ditzy. Like we really just kind of. We were just really baffled because we've never." That this happens, though. It happens to cheese makers. It's a cheese that's pretty control. consistent. Yeah. You can't control, but when you, it is a cheese that's pretty consistent. And usually, usually cheese makers, before they even send anything out, there's there's always someone, there's always a product product control and making sure that, the, and then where it goes next, always making sure that everything's okay. But you can't always make sure because you, you can always tell, look inside. Yeah, you can't look inside so, unless you cut it open and you're trying to sell a whole wheel of cheese. That thing had zero blue in it. And... We were all it was still tasty. We were still eating it. But yeah, yeah. We were postulating that like maybe they forgot to pierce the cheese or maybe the environment was too dry or, you know, some environment that wasn't perfect for the blue mold to grow. Yeah. Anyway, funny story. It was an oops. It was an oops. It was. So we're going to talk a little bit about specific blues. Um, just to start getting more familiar with why why we like these blues and why we continue to sell these blues. Yeah. So if uh, yeah. So so instead, we've condensed the understanding of how blue cheese is made into two categories that we're going to discuss: cheeses that require needling, right, the piercing, and um, which this is called to close texture. And then there are cheeses that are open texture. Mm-hmm. So. And it's important to note that blue cheese can be made from any type of milk. As with most cheese making, it all begins with heating the milk, adding the starter culture, usually rennet, and then it changes a little bit for blue cheese. Yeah, so the starter culture, the mold spores, this is all added to a, a warm milk or a tipid milk te- temperature to allow the curds to form. And then once it's shaped, it, it starts to dry and you get to do this you know, for a couple of days. Yeah. And there, then you go either through needling allowing the cheese air to enter, right? Um, yep, yep. 
naturally dries because there's excess air airflow. Or it can do both those things naturally by utilizing the open texture of the cheese. So without needling, the blue mold will spread naturally through the curds. Um, blues that are needled have a faster rate of bluing than open textured blues because there are more consistent path pathways of air for mold to grow with needling, which makes sense, right? If you're putting a pathway of air, multiple pathways of air through a cheese, that is more consistent for the mold to go through than counting on the irregularity of gaps between the curds in open textured blues. Mm -hmm. And with open textured cheeses, Leuconostock mm -hmm. is, and this is a bacterial culture that's sometimes added to encourage more production of gas holes into the curd, so yeah. more airflow. Exactly. And fun fact is Leuconostock is naturally occurring in sheep's milk which is why a lot of cheesemakers use a combination of sheep, cow, or sheep, goat, or sheep, right. sheep, goat, cow. Or just or sheep, sheep, you know, like seen <laughs> in Roquefort and Little Blue. I knew just... this, so I thought it was fascinating when I learned about that, yeah. Yeah, Roquefort and Little Blue both are made with just sheep. And 1924, another blue cheese, which is delicious, very granular, but savory and creamy. Made with cows and sheep's milk. So remember methyl ketone? You yep. mentioned that earlier. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what gives that very distinct blue flavor. Yes. Um, the more blue mold there is in a cheese, the stronger the flavor will get. Um, so for cheesemakers who needle their blues, they will often add magical salt. It's mm. not magic. <laughs> the salt is like magic because yes. the salt... Um, the salt when added to the curds before shaping the cheese, it, it slows down the, the production of blue mold. They, they clash. Yeah. And so, but beware though, because some cheesemakers, uh, unfortunately, can allow their cheeses to be overly blue. These are usually cheeses you might find in the grocery store, actually. Yeah. But there's a lot of veining going on, so it looks super blue on the shelf. That's a red, red flag. flag. Yeah. Total red flag. Mm -hmm. And this means that the cheese has been left to blue for too long and it's overly salted. So what you get is a, a really strong, almost, I wouldn't say bitter, but very piquant yes. uh, flavor blue. And it's just not a, it's not a balanced cheese. It's so really it's hard so to make good blue cheese and just notice if there's over blue veining that probably may be a sign of somebody wanting to make the cheese look like blue cheese more than taste like blue cheese and always. And and I think a way to see some of that too is sometimes if you look at different blues and we are Julie and I are fortunate to see blues all the time at the yes. shop, you'll see that near the rind it is it's kind of white. Yeah. But but cheeses that we talk about as the red flags, it'll be consistently blue throughout. Blue throughout, even on the rind, all over. Yeah. Just uh, crazy madness. Yeah. And uh, so but talking about how salt, I mean, why is that? I mean, I mean why is it? It was salt's always been used in cheese. Right. What does it but, contribute to the cheese? Like, what does it do? Um, well, added well, besides, salt... Besides, you know, preventing. Right. Mm. Added salt lowers the microorganism activity. It sort of makes it dormant. So, because not many airborne organisms can survive in high salinity environments, with the lowered mold activity, the ripening speed decreases. Um, salt also encourages lipolysis, again, to reiterate lipolysis is the breakdown of fats it encourages lipolysis more than proteolysis which means fats are breaking down faster than proteins are and the end result means less ammonia flavors and more 
piquant flavors, I would say. Mm. And and really skilled cheesemakers, people who have been doing this for a handful of years, who know their craft very well, well won't use that much salt mm-hmm. um, they, because they have good methods and they have good strains of, of blue mold they're using. Yeah. So salt is more like just kind of a little buffer for them to use a bit. Yeah, and to one of the techniques they may use would be perhaps piercing the cheese less, not like all over, maybe just through the tops, right? Yeah, there's a cool um, video. You can go online to say like kneeling cheese, blue cheese, and you'll see. It's a little machine that goes droop, and it comes out really quickly. What, what so sound does it make? Oh, well, it's my mind. It makes that sound. <laughs> and it comes out like a little car machine washing yeah. your car or something, but yeah. with needles. That's so, pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. So shout out to the blues, let's, man. Let's shout out some notable blues. You got, we like the Stilton, Rockfort, yes. which we started talking, Gorgonzola, yes. which we taught, you know, Rockfort, Gorgonzola, neighbors, lovers, um, mm-hmm. and Carballis. And these are protected cheeses from Europe. Protected um, makes it sound like these cheeses live in a vault somewhere only the people in the know know about, but it is not, I mean, you know, for physically. some people it's probably, <laughs> it's probably physically like that. Right. Don't that's touch true. my cheese. That's true. Um, people can be very protective of their cheeses. But protection is more mm-hmm. so governmentally, right, Camille? Yes, it's a they're they're landmark cheeses, they're historical cheeses and so they're they these are laws implemented to protect heritage. So for example, if you take a bite of Roquefort, like I'm taking a bite from Roquefort, this cheese has come all the way from um, south of France in Roquefort sur Sauston. So I'm eating heritage um, terroir cheese. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what that stamp labels implicate right and it can go very specific from like the temperature you're supposed to heat the milk up to the kind of milk you're supposed to use the species the breed of sheep you're supposed to use to milk the sheep to make the cheese that's very complicated and we could spend hours talking about that but we'll save that for a a different podcast yes podcast on bureaucracy yeah yeah (laughs) I think I would just eat cheese the entire time. Like, oh, I would as well. Next thing. Um, So the first cheese we're going to kind of dive into a little bit is the Stilton, and it is it is called Stilton because of the town it's from, called Stilton. Surprise, surprise, surprise! surprise. But to be Stilton, it has traditionally um, look like a cylinder shape, like a little drum. Mm -hmm. It has to be produced with local milk. That's pasteurized milk, and it can't. It's an unpressed cheese, and so it's left to do its own gooeyness for about twelve-ish weeks. So, and the earliest traces of it are seen in the 17th century in England, in a small town. Again, named Stilton, which is a parish in Cambridgeshire. Um, it Cambridgeshire. takes a different form from what we are used to seeing now. It uh, was actually white, not blue. There's a lot of this conversion with the English being like white, blue, blue, white. Yeah. I've kind of been noticing that. But um, what, and, and so because it was white, it was and it was made as a hard cream cheese, which is kind of a funny term yeah, to hard use. Hard cream, mm-hmm. hard hard cream. It was called the English Parmesan. So Stilton, <laughs> I think imagine so Stilton, who, who's ever eaten Stilton, right? He's blue. Fudgy. Imagine it white. Kind of crumbly. Yeah, crumbly. Imagine as an English Parmesan. It's like, it's That's funny. what the English called it, because I'm sure, like, imagine around the 17th century, how many varieties of cheese were there really compared to the amount of cheese there is now? Like, cheddar. So the, the notable cheese is maybe <laughs> cheddar, Parmesan. Yeah. And so they just picked the closest thing. 
that they could think of and made a comparison. Made, made their own. Cheddar. Like maybe Gouda's were called Dutch Parmesan. Who knew? Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. But I think it's funny because um, if, if you don't know, to be to be um, DOP, the stamp, to be Parmesan, it has to be aged for a minimum of two years. <laughs> that makes a really hard cheese. And yeah. Dilton is not aged for that long. No, so. not at all. It's very soft in comparison. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, it started off white in color, uh, but it became this cheese became very popular because there were not the many cheeses in this time that were a combination of whole milk and cream. Mm-hmm. Most cheeses in England, uh, this is the, the late 17th century, early 1800s. Yeah. So, most most cheeses were made with skim milk because it was cheaper um, to produce and sell. So, the town of Stilton eventually became a trading post between the South London in the South and Edinburgh up in Scotland in the North. So, a lot of you got a lot of travelers merchants kind of resting there and there was a um a famous there was an inn that was the, the inn everyone went to called the bell inn yeah and it is here that stilton became renowned because that it, it was served um at dinner and so the owner copper thornhill you know entrepreneur said well hello let's figure out a way to make it consistent and so made, made my client happy and he struck up a deal with a local cheesemaker called Lady Frances Paulet. And she was able to get a collective of farmers in the area, cheesemakers, and make a consistent supply of Stilton to yeah. the travelers. So we don't exactly, no one really knows when Stilton became a blue. Like, again, we're talking before natural spoilage, exposure, mm-hmm. off, mm-hmm. ran off with your lover and you came back and your <laughs> cheese was blue, whatever. But it is, um, became very popular and became very British. It was right. very And so. Thornhill and Pollitt were credited for the successful commercialization of Stilton cheese, collectively creating the recipe that is what we know today as Stilton. The recipe is still used today. Some notable creameries that make Stilton are Cropwell Bishop, Colson Bassett, Longclossen, Harrington, Tuxford, and Tibut, a and Webster. <laughs> Jelly, Julie's last name is, is B-U-T-T, but yeah. so, so she's actually Apparently, a cheesemaker. Apparently, I make Stilton. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And then we, so we carry the two cheeses that we, sorry, the two creameries of Stilton that we yes, often yeah. carry is kind of back and forth between Cropwell Bishop and Colson Bassett. Right now, I believe we have Cropwell Bishop of both Stilton and Shropshire, which hmm. is, is a yummy. It's it. That was, um, I mean, we could talk about it now, but Shropshire was a later invention. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it can't be called Stilton because you have to have that, that protected government relation for it. So it's a younger Stilton and they add annatto dye to give it that orange bright color Mm -hmm. and it's aged for a lot less. And it it was, it it was invented in the thirties and then really took off kind of in the fifties, but it's just a different variation. But so we, we kind of want to talk a little bit about, um, the context context of Cropwell Bishop. Cropwell Bishop, because it is, um, they have really became a pretty renowned creamery, um, in, in the States. So founded in 1847 in London, um, by a family that was mainly selling dairy, dairy products and some eggs and chicken of sort. So and then, if we backtrack in 1941 with the World War II, World War II, the company had to stop their blue cheese production for some reason. I think the laws made it so that they could not have a dairy, they could not sell products and make the products in the same business. So they created another business called Somerset Creameries, which is where they made their cheddar and blue cheese eventually. Fast forward by 1981, 
The families merged back together, officially becoming the Cropwell Bishop Creamery once again. And just last year, actually, Stilton Cropwell Bishop won the best blue in England. Yeah, he got on all the newspapers, even, I think it was even one of our newspapers in yeah. the States. So, got, we're now it's in recognition. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, while I was researching more of the history of Cropwell, Summerdale International, this, this, yeah. they produce other cheeses. If, you ever, if anyone ever had Red Dragon, that's mm-hmm. one of their cheeses. They're yeah. also a big distributor of British cheeses. So, I, that's funny because Julie's from Southeast Asia. Um, Summerdale International is tr- really trying very hard to increase their British cheese um, sales in Asia. Yeah. And I don't know. Do you think they'll be popular? Or do you think I, of, are, think there's I'm a, a not flavor complaining profile? about that. But, um, I mean, I guess talking to my grandparents and aunts and uncles, mostly my grandparents, they're not the biggest fans of cheeses. They will complain that it smells terrible. Um, but on the <laughs> other hand, they eat, like, Stinky tofu and fish sauce and other things in Asian culture that are fermented and heavily scented, I would say. It's just a different context. It's what you're used to. They don't grow up eating that. So I don't know. But I have heard of Asian cheesemakers and I have a feeling we'll be doing more research about that in the future. Oh yeah, it's gonna be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so another another shout out to a well-known creamery is Colson Bassett. That's the other creamery we often carry. Right, so. Colson Bassett and District Dairy were formed in 1913 by William Dr. William Windley. He established a co-op, which is um, gathering milk from multiple families and multiple dairies to make the first cheese, which was a pressed cheddar, or the company's first cheese, not the first cheese ever made. No. <laughs> probably like to say that they were the first cheese ever made. Yeah, I'm sure. So by 1920, the dairy standards for making Stilton um, had took off, but then it had to stop because sec- the Second War- World War II came into the picture, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And government made sure, like, everything was about focus of feeding the people. So cheddar was the cheese that you would make if you're a creamery because it is more accessible and you can produce a lot of it. So, you had, so it wasn't until about the 1950s that Colson Bat Colson Bassett and District Dairy went back into full, full production yep. of um, Stilton production. And they have been doing well ever since. They're a very successful creamery yep. and very renowned. And I'm um, glad we carry the cheese because it's delicious. Yeah. Uh, I was curious about what is the big deal of cheese port? <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Do a cheese port. Yeah, cheese and port. Cheese port. No, oh, cheese. I'm sorry. Cheese and port. And I meant to say Stilton and port. But yes. yeah, what's the big deal with Stilton and port? I mean, you've probably heard or seen the dynamic duo of Stilton and port. This is a big tradition in England. We don't really know how the tradition started, but you traditionally eat Stilton with port or Madeira wine. There is a heated debate about whether to scoop out a hole in your Stilton wheel and pour the port into it or slice it up and have the port to the side. And when it's she sort says of like an pour, etiquette thing. Like pour, she means so during the holidays, um, we have customers who will buy the whole wheel of or Wait, half say that a wheel again. of Stilton. Say that again. Customers who will buy whatever you customers who come weird. in Wait, pause pause first. Okay. So customers will come into our shop during the holiday season and buy either whole wheels or half a wheels of Stilton because it is a traditional um, festive cheese to eat. So when you're looking, when you look online, like pouring port into your, they will pour almost half a bottle, like or the whole bottle into this cheese. And it you're, soaks. you're supposed to, it soaks there and it gets really mushy. However, 
If you go on the website of Cropwell Bishop, there's a section that says cheese etiquette, and they will advise you not to do this. And and it's a video. So the person on the uh, who's recording the video, he makes a very uncomfortable expression of like, please do not pour. You know, ha- drink the drink, have it separately. Drink your drink your pour with your pinky up with your pinky up. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So we don't know, but it, it, I think it's kind of cute and funny because. There's really not a right or wrong and way. Ultimately, whatever you good. want to do, yeah. good. just do whatever. If you care about what yeah. your food looks like, maybe have the port on the side because if you pour it in, it tends to get this like mushy gray color, and not everybody likes to eat gray food. Yeah, it is kind of but no looking. judging. You know, do whatever you need. <laughs> delicious either way. Yeah. So another like delicious cheese is Rockport. Um, hailing back from France, mm-hmm. it is an AOC protected that government protection stamp. Yep. And um, considered one of the stronger blues on on the market, it dates back to somewhere around ten seventy. Yeah, it's one of the like world's oldest cheeses. Ages. Mm-hmm. Well, so is so is Gorgonzola. I mean, again, these are just these are cheeses have been around around the block for a while. Yeah. So for Rockfort to be Rockfort, it has to be made with raw sheep's milk, exactly. and that's by law. So respect yeah. your elders, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Respect the oldest. One of the oldest cheeses out there. It was apparently a favorite of Charlemagne of France and is still referred to as Camille. I'm going to need your help with this. <laughs> Le fromage de roi et du pape. So Excellent. the cheese of kings Beautiful. and popes. It's the it's a royalty cheese. Right. And like, I'm just <laughs> thankful that I exist in this century because I'm not a king or a pope, and I love this cheese. I don't know if I could live without it, honestly. And and I'm I'm eating it so right now. Exactly. Well, I've been- Sort of eating it in between our, our recording, but Hail King Camille. Uh, I don't know. If that's <laughs> okay, let's not do that. <laughs> but there are notable creameries, and unfortunately, there's creameries that we don't always get to carry. Mm-hmm. It's just just regulations bringing in cheeses and jazz like that. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll Pampion that we we usually carry in the shop. It is a beautiful black label. They have different labels doing it, but it is a beautiful, well-bodied piquant. Um, Blue cheese of Rockfort. And then there is Carla um, Gabriel Coulet. There is Le Fromager Occitan, Vernier, and Le Vieux Berger. And so these are some of the more renowned creameries that produce Rockfort in the region of Rockfort in the south of France. So I don't know how true this is, but it was often eaten as um, an after-dinner snack. Because it was a digestive. All the enzymes go into your belly and they help you digest your dinner. And I kind of been doing that ever since. So and that's how, how do you feel? feel? How do you feel? More. I, I don't feel any different. Any- but <laughs> I like. I like happier. Like, yeah, I've been going through like all the blue cheeses. <laughs> have like a. I, I really recommend an apple so pears. Yeah. They'll be two, but sort of like a. Chris, um, Chris, no, not because yeah, I've been trying different apples too, but I really like it as an after dinner thing. I kind of, it's not heavy. No, I mean, unless so, you eat like a whole thing. Have you ever tried having m- multiple blue cheeses on a platter together? How do you pull that off? Because they're so strong, like a platter of three blue cheeses. Honey, honey. I like honey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, honey and different apples and different pears. Yeah, because I think I've had I've had blue Jovan and be. Bailey Hazen at the same time. Yeah. I don't think that's because they're so different. They're, the blues are so different that it's like eating a different cheese, even right. though it's from the same category. But you couldn't just have the cheese on its own. There, you need something to like clean clean your palate, like a juicy apple. Yeah, I kind of like it. Yeah, with a 
I kind of like it with something. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about Gorgonzola. Gorgonzola. Tell me a little bit about um, the actual history of it, as we know, not the lover history. The liver, lover. the lover, the liver's lover's history. So Gorgonzola, again, protected and somewhere, I think it's even older than Rockport, but 800, 879 AD. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's been, this cheese is definitely seen many sides of humanity. But it, so the idea, the, how it started was the cows were herded from the Alps down to the Po River to arrive in the town of Gorgonzola. Um, and there was a valley nearby called Brigamo. And all of this geographically is very close to Milan, the capital. Mm-hmm. So um, the reason the cows were brought in this area, there was a lot of grass, they could nosh. And what you have, they just had an excess amount of cows. So like, oh, what should we do with excess? We'll make cheese. And so that's how Gorgonzola. That's like every cheese story. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Too much what cows. To do, what to do. How to make feed people, cheese. what to do with them, all those things. Yeah. So, yes, it, it's... It, I mean, the older story with the we talked about with the horny Roman <laughs> cheesemaker, you know, draining the crisps to his lover, it probably isn't that far off, frankly. Yeah. Um, but making the recipe for making gorgonzola is 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 cow's milk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a the milk's heated somewhere between eighty two to ninety three degrees Fahrenheit. Um, you add enzymes, blue mold, rennet. You let the cur the the curds curds separate from the whey, right? And then you you you'll mold the curd, um, but you have to drain out any liquid. So you put them in hemp cloth, which yep. really intrigued me when I read this because um, ma- many centuries ago, there was actually abundance of hemp in Europe yep. and then disappeared because of wheat producers. Yep. But they would use hemp for clothing and everything else. So you had hemp cloth. I mean, mm-hmm. now we use cheese. I'm sure you, um, that's not specific cloth, to the recipe, yeah. Yeah, to the protection. No, you not don't anymore, have to use but, hemp. But you can use hemp or cheese, but I think yep. you can still... Either one. And uh, so you, you let the drain for about 12 hours and then you mold it. You age it for about uh, five to six days. You will, you're going to do the, the needling, right? Mm-hmm. The piercing yeah. of the cheese um, and let that happen. And then the cheese ages for about a month and in really high humidity, 80% humidity and 43 degrees Fahrenheit to 50 degrees um, Fahrenheit environment. So I'm not sure if anyone <laughs> has been, has, has visited a cheese cave or yeah. anything like that, but some of the very modern ones that you come to visit, the, the, the most two con, the, the most two important things ever is always going to be like the temperature control of the level of humidity and how yeah. how cold or how high that that is consistent. Yeah. And so that just it's kind of a fun fact to know. But when you're eating cheese, just think humidity, airflow, temperature, like those that determines Cheap really how your how your mold's going to grow and how yeah. your cheese is going to grow. All those. If, every, if anybody out there took notes on Camille's recipe for gorgonzola, I will be awaiting at the Del Mar Venetian <laughs> shop because please bring in all your gorgonzola that you make. I would like yeah. to make blue cheese at some point. That sounds daunting. Maybe I need to ask I don't Paul. Know. I th- I, you can do it naturally. Make sure ask Paul. Paul is one of Paul our... Paul is a um, Liberty Station Station Venissimo's manager. And he and does he all cheese. of our... Yeah, he does all of our make chev, make uh, mozzarella, make... He's a lot of fun. Yeah. Classes and he's, he's he's also a photographer, so yes, he's, he's very knowledgeable many and artistic. So give yeah. him shout out, shout out, Paul. Shout out, Last Paul. Last but hey, not Paul. least. <laughs> um, but but before, sorry, just before we go to Carbales, oh, yes, uh, two really well known uh, creameries of Gorgonzola are um, Siriesa and Arigoni, and mm-hmm. those are the ones that we consistently get in. They you know, also produce Taleggio, which is. Right. So Noble Creameries are Theresa and Aragoni. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the two creameries that 
produce gorgonzola and we often carry and, and often you see in other stores, not just in you smell. So and they also produce Taleggio, which is so delicious, washed rind. I've yes. never had the Ceresa one. I've had the Aragoni, which is delicious, but I've heard from Camille that the Ceresa is less creamy. Yeah, it's a different form of Taleggio. It's a lot firmer. It's just a little bit more tactile. Is it like and the it- Grayson? You know the texture of Grayson? Yeah, it's like the texture of Grayson, but not the exterior of Grayson. Okay. It's delicious. All I right. spent- I really recommend it. I'm excited to try it. I'll ask. So last but not least, last but not least is our little, our Spaniard friend, Cabrales. Cabrales. It is also protected. Uh, PDO, I think. So many acronyms, but. So many acronyms. It's protected. That's all you need to know. It is. Mostly, mostly those terms are like, are protection of control or application. There's like a D and an O and a P somewhere. Uh, A D and O and a P, so so. Protection, destination. Cabrales is a trale cheese, or tres leches, or trelati. Um, <laughs> three milk, basically. Long, it is yeah. cow, goat, and sheep, all in one delicious zippy blue. Yes, and it, it's, it comes from the region of Ast- Astorias. Mm-hmm. Astorias. Yep. Uh, it's northwest of Spain. And if you look, if you go, do a quick Google search and you go online, you'll see it, it's beautiful. It looks like the Alps. Um, yep. So, of course, it's a natural area for you know, limestone cage, which is abundant in our favorite mold, Pelusian Rock 40. Exactly. So, it is aged yeah. for two to four months in these limestone caves, giving it a delicious minerality. Like sometimes you can taste <laughs> the minerals from the cave. I love mm-hmm. that. That that makes for delicious blues. So and. and- Cheese is wrapped in uh, grape leaves, but yeah. when it comes into um, the U.S., because of regulation, they have to put it around foil. Yeah. Actually, you had a cool fact about yeah, foil. Yeah, so foil, in addition, helps the blue mold um, to be restrained. Basically, it stops the airflow from going into the holes because the foil sort of, quote-unquote, suffocates the cheese. It, it keeps it from developing more blue. So that is why most blues that we know today are wrapped in foil. Um, to move on, though, let's talk about some of our favorites. What, besides the big four, Stilton, Gorgonzola, Cabrales. Oh, and- some of my favorites. <laughs> I I love ba- Bailey Haven. Um, from, you stole mine. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and Point Reyes. Uh, Point Reyes blue. We have to give good. a shout out again. Yeah. We talked again, about them last week. But, you know, I don't think we can run away from Camille's. Um, 1924 is delicious. Yeah, my hunk. Well, it's not my hunk, but it, he's a anyway. Um, <laughs> but it's Valentine's Day. I can have yeah, dreams. You can have dreams. If so, so uh, <laughs> what, what? I'm trying to think of another cheese that is really funny besides Stilton and Bailey Hayes in 1924. Mine shaft is fantastic. Um, what, about, what about you? Well, I like Bailey Hazen from Jasper Hill Farm, same place that makes um, Harbison and Willoughby and all those delicious cheeses. Ooh. Caveman's really good. Caveman. Because got a creamery does some really good blues. Caveman is delicious. And Rogue River, I think, is one of Roaring favorites. 40s from Australia. Wait, now we're good. just listing all the blue cheeses that we have to <laughs> Well, there's a, I have a preference for blue, so I, I like almost all of them. Um, That's true. Uh, but there's, uh, you, I forgot to mention this with Gorgonzola, but there's Gorgonzola and there's Gorgonzola Dolce. And Gorgonzola Dolce is a lot um, milder yeah. than Gorgonzola, which is a little bit pecan. And mm-hmm. then there's Gorgonzola Mixed. With mascarpone, so like a layered cake. Yum. That you one's can do, delicious. You can I think do we a had lot. a pistachio one this past um, holiday season that was so mm-hmm. good. Um, that was yummy. But yeah, let's not sidetrack anymore. We've arrived here at the end of the hour, and we hope 
that you listeners out there learned maybe more than a thing or two about blue cheese? Yes, and how blue is mold? What the hell is blue cheese? How does the blue form? What's the preferred methods of aging? How it became popular, some notable blues, and if you care, some of Camille and my favorite ones. Favorite blues, yeah. And now it's time to turn to you listeners. If you think we've missed something or need to explore a topic further, let us know. Please email your comments, thoughts, questions, any cheese-related concerns to info at venissimo.com so we can address them in the next segment of the Dairy Maidens. Here from the Specialty Produce Network in San Diego, we wish you a happy Tuesday and please, for your own sake, eat eat more more cheese. Hi, fellow cheese lovers. Cheese Whiz Gina here, and I invite you to subscribe to our Noon on Tuesday podcast to hear all about cheese all the time. You can listen on iTunes or SoundCloud or subscribe via FeedBurner under Noon on Tuesday. You can also watch us live every week on Facebook at Benissimo Cheese at, you guessed it, noon every Tuesday Pacific time. We're fun, we're cheesy, so tune in and tell your friends to tune in too. Ciao. <laughs>